So how about that Alaska Airlines flight where the door plug came out and the cabin depressurized and they had to make an emergency landing? I saw the video yesterday of the president of Alaska talking about what had happened and what they were doing to fix it and to uh, assure people that everything was going to be all right. But I'm just betting a lot of people keep flying, but they're not going to be booking a lot of window seats anytime soon. But the thing that was most interesting about the video was that he kept referring to the people who fly Alaska Airlines as guests. And I'm like, you and I have two different understanding of the word guest. Because every time I have been on Alaska Airlines recently, I've plunked down a couple of hundred dollars and then they've had the nerve to charge me $11 for a fruit and cheese plate. That doesn't feel like guest to me. A guest to me is somebody that you have over, you don't charge them, you just kind of care for them and treat them like they're special. So this word guest, I guess, has a very different meaning to different people. It's a different kind of concept for different folks. And that really is at the core of what I want to talk about today, is a concept that can have different meanings to different people. So we're going to look at a passage in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45. It says, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is basically naming the fact that there is a power structure in the world. I mean, even chickens have a pecking order. Some people have power, and some people don't. It's good if you have it. And if you don't, it's not always so great. That was true in Jesus' day. You've got Caesar and then the king or the governor in political power. You've got the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees in religious power. You've got rich people with cultural power. And the disciples would have been very, very aware of who was in power and how they used their power, especially how they used their power towards people who didn't have power. And that's still true today. There are these people who are influencers or political leaders or CEOs of multinational corporations, and they have power and money and prestige. And what do they do with that power? Well, I think sometimes they use it for good. And sometimes it's more like, I'm going to get everything I can out of this arrangement. And maybe most of the time it's somewhere in between. But in general, people who are in power begin to like it and begin to see themselves as different than other people. The point that Jesus is making is that the people who have power tend to think of themselves as being better and that they deserve the power and that they should cling to that power. And because of the golden rule, you've heard of that, right? Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Because of the golden rule, the goal of a lot of people is then to have power and money and influence so that they can have all of the things that some people have that they don't. But what kind of culture does that set up? I think it sets up a dog-eat-dog, -dog, Darwinian survival of the fittest, I'm never satisfied, I always want more kind of culture. 
Uh, I'll steal your ideas or your friends or your clients to make myself look better kind of society. And Jesus says, it's not like that in the kingdom. The question isn't how much can I get, it's how much can I give? Because the kingdom of God is a place where people care about each other, where people share, where our value isn't found in comparing ourselves to other people, where we don't have to hoard resources or power because you can't outgive God. God's faithful. He'll provide for our needs and most of our wants if we're honest. And so we don't have to live in fear. That's the character of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And then he gives himself as the chief example of what the kingdom and its values look like. I mean, think about at the Last Supper, when Jesus gets down on his knees with a wash basin and washes his disciples' feet. It was a great example of, here's a need, I can meet the need, and I'm not above meeting it. It's a great example of what service should look like. And then Jesus goes on to talk about the ultimate act of service is when he gives his life as a ransom for many. That's what the kingdom looks like. It's so different from the culture because that's what Jesus is like. That's what God is like. And then those of us who are following Jesus are called to be like that, to live into that kind of kingdom here and now by the way that we love and care for and serve other people. Well, I could be done there, but I'm not. Because this passage isn't so much about serving as it is on being on mission. And there seems to be as much misunderstanding about mission as there is about the word guest. So we need to look at the context. In the earlier part of the chapter, back around verse 32, Jesus explains to his disciples for the third time what he's going to do. They're going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be handed over to the authorities, and they're going to mock him, they're going to spit on him, they're going to flog him, they're going to kill him, and three days later he's going to rise. Well, that's pretty disturbing. And it's pretty dramatic. I mean, if, if you parse all those things out, nobody wants to be spit at, nobody wants to be beaten, nobody wants to be killed. So that's pretty heavy and pretty dramatic. And if the three times that Jesus tells his disciples what his mission is, what he's about to do, this is the most specific. He gets into the most details here. So it's pretty dramatic as he lays out what his mission is to go to Jerusalem and to die and then to be raised three days later. So pause for just a second. Since the Bible is about real people doing real things in real time, let's enter into this story just a little bit. So imagine that you've got something really heavy going on in your life. Maybe you've heard that your company is doing layoffs and you have a note to come see your boss. Maybe you heard in second period that your boyfriend is going to break up with you at lunch. Maybe you just found a scary lump and you're worried. It's a big deal and you want to share it with a friend. And so you do. It's pretty vulnerable. It's pretty authentic. And now imagine their first response is, hey, I have a favor to ask you. Wouldn't you be like, um, did you not hear what I just said to you? 
And I think that enters into this passage. Jesus shares his mission. It's dramatic, it's vulnerable, it's authentic. And immediately, his closest friends go, hey, we have a favor that we want to ask you. I, I actually love the language a lot. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's like, you know, if, if you've ever had kids who are like, hey, I want you to do this thing for me, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. You just have to say yes. So it's kind of amusing. So they come and they're like, hey, yeah, that's great, but here's a favor that we have. And Jesus is like, what do you want me to do for you? And they're like, well, we would like one of us to sit on your right and one of us to sit on your left in your glory. What? Did they not hear what Jesus said? I'm going to Jerusalem to be beaten, spit upon, and ultimately to die. Did they not hear that? Well, yeah, but this is what they heard. We're going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to be made king. And so they're thinking, awesome, we're taking our country back from the Romans. Let's divide the spoils. There's going to be positions of power. There's going to be glory. And who deserves glory more than us? So they've completely missed what Jesus' mission was, what he came to do. Now here's the thing. We are all on mission. Jesus was on mission. James and John were on mission. The question is, whose mission are we on? So James and John are on mission, and they thought it was the same mission as Jesus. Their mission was for prestige and power. Were they bad people? No, they were just culturally conditioned. What's the best you can shoot for? Well, power, influence, and money. So they're thinking, following Jesus is going to give me privileges. Following Jesus is going to give me great things. Prob following Jesus is going to make my life easier. So they come to Jesus, there's this, this non sequitur, did you listen, did you not listen, what did you hear? But the other disciples are around and they hear this and it irritates them. Why? Because James and John got there first. That's why they're irritated, because they all had the same thoughts. And so the disciples are basically competing for first place. They're trying to outmaneuver each other for power advantage. They wanted to dominate people. They didn't want to serve them. That's why the disciples are irritated. They're on a mission too, and it's basically to get as much as they can for them and baptize that with Jesus. And so Jesus looks at this and he says, you don't get it. The government can't change people's hearts. Power isn't going to change you on the inside. That's the wrong mission. Now, I went down this path a little bit further because they aren't the only ones who have a misunderstanding of what the mission is. Lots of us are reading the Bible through in a year, and so I've been doing that, I'm keeping up with it, and I'm, my, the Bible that I'm reading through a year this time starts with the New Testament, which is kind of nice. So two different times I've read the story of John the Baptist. It's in Luke 7, it's also in Matthew 10. And at one point, John is in prison and he sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus. And he says, ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? This is John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin. This is the person who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now he's like, Are you really the one or were we mistaken about that? 
Why does John ask this? Because Jesus isn't doing what John expected him to do. Jesus' mission doesn't even look like what John thought it was going to look like. And maybe it's the fact that John is languishing in prison. I mean, if you're sitting in prison, if you're John the Baptist, if you're the cousin of the Messiah, if you're the one that's supposed to prepare the way for him to come, how can it be right to be sitting in prison? I bet John is thinking, I should be experiencing the blessings of God. And if even John can get the mission wrong, we might want to examine what mission we're on. And so Jesus sends back word. Uh, he says, tell John about the healings. Tell John about the hope. Tell, tell John about the people's lives who are being changed. He reminds John what the mission is. We're all on a mission. The question is, whose mission are you on? And this context makes the line that we read earlier make so much more sense. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Like Jesus goes, Guys, we got to get on the same page with this. Because they want a Messiah who will give them what they want. They want a Messiah who will make their lives comfortable. And here's the problem. Those things will never satisfy the inner desires of your heart. In that case, if that's your mission, if that was their mission, Jesus just becomes a means to their own selfish ends. And there's really no life transformation or hope there. The key to the passage is, not so with you. Because greatness isn't found in power or positions. Greatness is found in serving other people in the name of Jesus. Jesus' full glory is revealed on the cross, greatest act of service. And the way of the cross is the way of real life. The disciples aren't asking for the honor of being crucified with Jesus. They're asking for the honor of getting their own kingdoms. One of my favorite concepts in Christian spirituality is the idea of the dark night of the soul. It comes um, from the experience of a Spanish mystic named St. John of the Cross. And the idea of the dark night of the soul is that when we follow Jesus, sometimes we're not really in love with Jesus, we're in love with the benefits we get from Jesus. And John points out that there is a difference between the two. So the dark night of the soul is that process that sometimes we go through. I know I've been through it, and maybe you have too. Maybe you didn't even know this is what it was called. But the dark night of the soul is when it feels like all of the blessings of God are removed from your life. It doesn't feel happy. It doesn't feel hopeful. It doesn't feel like your prayers are being answered. That's why it's a dark night of the soul. And what you discover through that, if you peel away all of the blessings, is what you're left with is God himself. And it's kind of a, of a refining time where you have an opportunity to go, was I in this just because it made me feel good? Or was I in this because I truly love God? And I think that's profound because sometimes we get just attached to the blessings of God, not God himself. So think in a bigger picture, why do people still follow Jesus when they have to meet in an underground church? 
Why do people around the world risk their lives to own and read a Bible? Why do people look at prison for their faith as an opportunity to reach more people for Christ? Because they realize that only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Only Jesus can bring them true peace. Only Jesus can give them real hope. And they have found that even in the midst of times that don't feel like God is blessing them. They still find satisfaction in the mission of God, even if they're in prison. So what finally changes the disciples and gets them on the right mission? I think it's when they finally see clearly what Jesus has done and was doing for them. It's after the resurrection, when Jesus comes to them, that they really see what the real mission is, and then they all give their lives for it. Jesus is building a different kingdom. He's on a different mission. Whose mission are you on? There was a saying that was attributed to Genghis Khan. A man's greatest work is to break his enemies, to drive them before him, to take from them all things that have been theirs, to hear the weeping of those who cherished them, to take their horses between his knees, and to press in his arms the most desirable of their women. There's just way too much Genghis Khan out there and not enough Jesus. And that's why the world needs the church to be true to its mission. That's why people who follow Jesus need to be on Jesus' mission, not just some baptized version of their own desires. This is a hard time for the church in our culture. People are asking, what does the church even do? Is the church even a, a force for good? In fact, I'm reading more and more articles where people look at the church as actually being wicked. Let that settle in for just a minute. What do we exist for? I think we exist to live out the gospel. We exist to love God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And truthfully, that rolls off the tongue fairly easily. But what does it mean practically if our mission is really to love God in all things and to love our neighbors as ourselves? Because if we don't do that, or when we stop doing those things, when we substitute another mission, when we're known for anything other than loving God and loving people, then we cease to become the church. And when we stop being the church, the world doesn't need us anymore. And we really don't have anything to offer to the world that they can't find someplace else, probably done better, and without the religious overtones and the potential hypocrisy. The church has a mission. It's Jesus' mission. We're all on mission. The question is, what mission are you on? So I was thinking about this. I was thinking about my current mission. During COVID, which was a really hard time for all of us, I felt like my mission was absolutely crystal clear. My mission in everything I did, whether it was with my family or with my friends or doing videos for church or being at church, my mission was to give people hope. I had such clarity during that time. And so I stopped to think, what exactly would my mission be now? The first thing that I thought of was that my mission is to someday stand before Jesus and have him go, well done, good and faithful servant. But I thought, I want to be a little bit more clear about that. And so I, I, what I came up with is that my mission 
is to honor and glorify Jesus in all the choices I make and in all the relationships that I have. That's my first stab at that. What would yours be? And you can be honest because you don't have to show it to anyone. Maybe you're like, you know what? My mission statement is to just get through the day. And oh man, I get it. There are days like that, but we need to aim a little higher than that. Maybe you'd say, my mission is to walk through this diagnosis, however it may end, and bring glory and honor to God in all of my relationships and all of my reactions. Great. You might say, my mission is to be an authentic Jesus follower at my school. Excellent. Or my mission is to see my workplace as a mission field. Those are great ways to personalize the mission of Jesus in your own life. And serving and being on mission with Jesus may actually keep you from dying early. Larry Majofsky, eminent psychologist in our congregation, sent me a study that, um, from Berkeley Wellness, and it talked about a 2010 analysis of 148 studies that linked stronger social ties to, I get this, 50% reduction in mortality rates. You have a 50% better chance of living longer if you have strong social ties. But then it goes on. Social support may sound like something we receive, but a recent study which focused on the giving side of the equation suggests that the biggest health benefit may come from providing support to others rather than receiving it. After adjusting the data for variables such as age, gender, initial health, personality traits, and support received from others, the researchers found that experiencing stressful events significantly predicted increased mortality over the next five years among people who didn't provide help to others, but not among helpful people. Serve people, live longer. But I also want to come back to the last line where Jesus gives this example of service and says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus has told his disciples three different times that he has to die. And this is the place in Mark where he tells them why. He's dying to give his life as a ransom for money. That word that's used, that's translated as ransom in English, is a biblical term that means a couple of things. It can mean to compensate for a personal injury that you caused, or for a crime you committed to, to ransom that back. It can also be, it's used biblically when you purchase back an enslaved relative. And in the popular extra-biblical sources of the day, it refers to the amount that you pay to free a slave or a prisoner, or to reclaim something that you've pawned. So it is a really, really rich word. And what it basically means is, Jesus serves you to the extent that he dies in order to buy you back. To buy you back from your own selfishness, to buy you back from the power of sin and evil and death in your life. Jesus gives his life to ransom you back. But there's also another implication of the word and that is that the person who has been ransomed then belongs to the person who paid the ransom. And what that means is, in this case, when Jesus pays the ransom for many people, when he buys us back, is that ultimately we find freedom when we're set free from bondage 
in order to follow Jesus. We don't find freedom when we're set free to do whatever we want to do, because that leads back to bondage. The ultimate mission of Jesus is to bring us life, and he invites us to be on that mission with him. So let me ask you three questions. If you wrote a one-sentence mission statement that reflected the reality of your life at this very moment, what would it be? Number two, what does that mission statement tell you about who or what you're following? And number three, what mission do you think Jesus has for you? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.